Slovenly trolls, slovenly trolls, we're big, bad, evil girls. Hello, and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Slovenly Trolls podcast. I am your host and captain of the ship, Lissa. And I'm Shmi, otherwise known as Charday, because apparently... This is Lissa's ship, and I have nothing to do with it. And if you could please send help, that would be very much appreciated. Thanks. We don't need help. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> so in this episode, we have a little bit of a special episode because we have a special guest with us today. <sighs> wow. Yeah, we're going to. So our day, yes. how about you tell us a little bit what we're going to do today? Oh, me. Okay. Yes. So. We have a very uh, special guest who I will announce in just a moment. Um, but before I do, just a little disclaimer for our loyal viewers out there. This is just going to be a different vibe of an episode, a different kind of episode. Instead of doing like a really, really big deep dive into specific topics, we are instead doing a collaborative episode with the wonderful D&D Book Club podcast. And we are going to be looking specifically at uh, Lord Strahd. Or no, Strahd, just Strahd and Lord Soth, because I can differentiate between those two very well. And we're going to be uh, splitting this into three parts. You know, your sass is never appreciated while I'm doing my intro. (laughs) So first, we'll be going over part one will be Lord Soth. Uh, Part two, we will be going over Strahd. And then we're going to bring it all together in part three where we're going to be talking about some overarching themes and context and basically what these two characters have in common, specifically when it comes to using women as part of their tragic backstories. And we're going to give our opinions, some analysis, some good things and bad things, and just overall converse and have a good time. So without further ado, we'd like to introduce you to our wonderful guest today of the D&D Book Club podcast, Megan. Thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to have you. you. Well, thank you for having me. And his official title is Count Strahd. Count Strahd. Okay. No, that makes sense because that that makes (laughs) a lot more sense because isn't he basically just a, he's like Dracula. He's Count Dracula and Count Strahd, right? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Count okay. Count Strahd von Zarevich. Von Zarevich. Definitely will be mispronouncing mm-hmm. that, but uh, <laughs> why don't you just take a hot second and introduce our audience to yourself and your podcast. Give us a little bit of a spiel on what your expertise is in. Uh, sure. My name is Megan. I am the host of D&D Book Club, which you can find on um, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, pretty much anywhere, just D-A-N-D-D podcast. Um, it's a, a podcast where I read the novels from uh, the Dungeons and Dragons settings from the 80s and 90s and just talk about them, what's good about them, what I don't like about them. Um, I do sort of like a synopsis and then it's a it's a combination of a synopsis and a review of these different novels. Um, so far, I've done the uh, the first two core trilogies of the Dragonlance series, followed by Dragons of Summer Flame and the, um, the second generation. And now I've started working on Ravenloft. I've done Vampire of the Mists and uh, Night of the Black Rose, which is about Lord Saw. 
yeah, and I'm trying to, I'm branching out into new things lately, doing collaborations, trying new things, but the core of my podcast is reading the old novels and discussing them. It's a really great podcast. You should definitely check it out if you haven't already. It, especially for me, because I, I really want to start reading the Dragonlance books and the Ravenloft books. Um, but, you know, I don't know where to start. And it's it's nice to have a podcast that kind of gives me an overarching view of, oh, if you like these things, then you can read this book and then give a little bit of analysis. I really, I just finished listening before we started recording actually your episode on Lord Soth, who we'll be talking about. And I found it very informative just for my own research. So if you just want to know more about the characters, about the stories, definitely give it a check out. 100% worth the listen. Plus, you get to hear Megan's yeah. wonderful voice. So. Now I'm deep into Lord Soth at the moment. So deep, are you you're doing a Lord your own Soth like fan. deep dive? Well, um, there's a, a series of three books that I call the Lord Soth trilogy, even though they're not really a trilogy. Um, but there's a, a book that's just called Lord Soth from the Dragonlance series, and then there's two Ravenloft books, Knight of the Black Rose and Spectre of the Black Rose. And I'm actually thinking about doing a fourth episode that's going to be. Ooh two different um, novellas that are about Lord Soth. One is a Dragonlance novella called True Knight, and the other is a Ravenloft novella called The Rigors of the Game. Very So cool. I might make my trilogy my trilogy into a four-part series. Very cool. There's just a lot to talk about with Lord Soth. Well, we will definitely be getting into that this episode for sure. Mm-hmm. Probably not as in-depth. So if we if we do miss anything, we're probably going to miss a lot of things when we're talking about Lord Soth and Lord Strahd. So if you if we do miss anything, please, please, please go check out Megan's podcast. She will probably do a much better job describing especially these characters specifically in much more depth and their kind of intricacies than we have enough time to do on this podcast. Uh, so I think – why? So I think we've done a pretty good job of introducing what the episode's about. So let's say we just jump right into it and start talking about Lord Soth. What do you guys say? Sounds, Sounds good, good to me. Sweet. So I think we should again hand it over to Megan. Give you keep you up on your little pedestal, your platform, and sure. can you <laughs> give us like a little bit of a? Why don't you tell us a bit about Lord Soth and his? tragic quote-unquote backstory well i would love to um lord soth is a death knight from the dragonlance series he first appears in the novel dragons of spring dawning by margaret weiss and tracy hickman which is the third novel in the dragonlance series um his his backstory is that he was once a a noble and virtuous uh knight belonging to an order called the knights of salamnia and he was he was considered by everybody to be the paragon of knightly virtue, the ultimate paladin, basically. Um, and he lived in a time when the continent was ruled by a theocratic was ruled by a theocrat called the King Priest of Istar, who basically held complete sway over the entire over the entire continent. Um, but Lord Soth is going along. He's living his best life. He marries a, a beautiful and wealthy heiress. He builds himself a castle called Dargard Keep. And it seems like he's got everything he wants in his life until it becomes apparent that his wife and no lo- 
or he and his wife are unable to have a child together. Um, his wife actually has several different names, and one of them she's called Galadria, and another she's called Gadria, and another she's called Corinne. Um, I'm just going to call her Galadria because I just like the sound of that one. Um, but they're unable to have a child together, um, and he begins to lose interest in her. He goes off one day doing his man stuff, and he encounters um, a group of ogres that's attacking a party of elven women. He and his men rescue the elven women, and he meets a beautiful elven maiden named Isolde and immediately is infatuated with her. He brings her back to his home, which causes some tension, obviously, since his wife doesn't like him having this beautiful young elf woman hanging around. Um, his wife uh, attempts to use magic to conceive, and the child that's born is born deformed, and Stra uh, sorry, Soth, in a rage, uh, murders his wife and murders their newborn baby. Um, and there, that's one version of the story. So there's, there's a version of the story where Soth murders his wife and the baby. There's another version of the story where there is no baby and Soth um, hires an assassin to murder his wife. But either way, uh, Soth is the one behind the death of his wife. Um, he marries the elf woman in a hasty ceremony, but rumors reach the leadership of the knights that he's actually, um, there may be foul play um, in the death of his first wife. They investigate, they put him on trial, they find him guilty, and he's set to be executed, but he's rescued by his men and taken back to his castle. Uh, he and his wife basically, uh, he and his new wife, the elven wife, they have a baby together, a little boy, and she's praying to the gods, trying to find redemption for her husband, and he just becomes more and more bitter. Eventually, he strikes her, and in that moment, he kind of sees that he's, I guess it's that moment that he sees how evil he's become, not the moment when he murders his first wife, but um, he decides to pray uh, to the gods himself, and then the the goddess Mishakal, the goddess of healing, appears to his wife in a dream and tells her that if Lord Soth will go to the city of Istar and try to stop the king priest. Um, uh, so the king priest is about to draw down the wrath of the gods on, on the whole world. And Lord Soth is given this mission to go to Istar, stop the king priest, and his soul will be redeemed, although it will cost him his life in the process. And along the way to Istar, he's encountered, uh, he encounters some elven women who are uh, his wife's old buddies, and they tell him that she's been unfaithful to him. And that this whole thing about him going to Istar and defeating the king priest and preventing the cataclysm is just a big ruse to get him out of the way. So he's enraged. He travels back to his home of Dargard Keep. He accuses his wife, Isolde, of being unfaithful. Um, and at that moment, the cataclysm that the gods warn about strikes. A chandelier falls from the sky. Or fall, not from the sky. Wow, that would be really good falls from the ceiling, <laughs> that'd be quite the cataclysm. The cataclysm of falling chandeliers, very Phantom of the, op very Phantom of the Opera. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> so the chandelier falls from the ceiling and crushes a soul, killing, basically killing her. And as she's dying, she begs um, for Soth to come and take the baby away before it's consumed in the flames from the candles. Um, but Soth turns his back on his wife and on his baby, the fire spreads from the chandelier and engulfs the entire castle. 
uh, Soth is killed, all his warriors are killed, um, and at the moment before she dies, his wife curses him to live one life for each life he has failed to save. So Soth comes back from the dead as a death knight. He he basically spends the next 300 years or so just hanging around his castle, being being dark and evil, um, until, until Tachesis, the queen of darkness, the evil goddess of Dragonlance, appears and tells him that he's um, that she wants him to lead to participate in the war that she's waging on the continent and he says he will join but only if one of her commanders is brave enough to spend the night in his haunted castle uh, as it happens the commander who takes up the challenge is the high lord of the blue dragon army whose name is Kidiara Uthmatar um, she's just like a badass general and warrior and she's not afraid of anything and she decides that she's going to take up this challenge because she knows that having a partnership with Lord Soth is going to make her very powerful. So she goes to the to Dargar Keep, she spends the night there. Soth is kind of taken with her um, and the two of them form a partnership. They work together to trap Kidiara's military rival who is a blonde-haired elf woman named Lorana. They trap her together, and Soth becomes obsessed with Lorana. He sees her as sort of a stand-in for his wife Isold, and he wants he wants the Queen of Darkness to transform Lorana into his undead his undead banshee bride for all eternity. Um, but ultimately, their plans are thwarted by some heroes, um, and Lorana escapes. But Soth, in the meantime, has transferred his fixation from Lorana now to Kidiara. He's become obsessed with doing to Kidiara what he had planned to do to Lorana, which is to have her become his immortal undead bride. Um, he conspires to, ha- to ultimately to have Kidiara murdered, and his plan succeeds. He takes her body with him back to his castle. He sends one of his minions into the abyss to find her spirit. Um, but before his plan can be completed, Soth is transported into uh, the domain of Ravenloft. Um, he has some adventures there. He eventually becomes the, the ruler of his own little kingdom in Ravenloft. And while he's there, he hears reports of the spirit of Kidiara being sighted in his domain, and he becomes obsessed with trying to, to track her down so that the, so that he can possess her as he's always wanted to do. But ultimately, Soth, uh, he doesn't find Kidiara, but he's able to escape from Ravenloft. He makes his way back to Kryn. He goes back to his old ways of brooding alone in his castle. And ultimately, he's given the decision about, uh, he's given the choice to join the Queen of Darkness once again. And this time he refuses. And in his, in her anger, the Queen of Darkness restores his mortality, collapses the castle on top of him, and Lord Soth dies. And that's it. That's Lord Soth. So he dies and stays dead? He dies and stays dead. He's dead dead. Mm. Okay. It's kind of a long story. He does. There's a lot to him. His story is kind of complicated. Because he's got his whole story when he's a human, and then he's got his story in Dragonlance, and then he's got his story in Ravenloft. Right. He spans like a bunch of different series, right? Like a bunch of different universes. Yeah, exactly. And he's been kind of this, he's been this enduring character. He was in the series from the start and he was, you know, he just kind of Mm -hmm. stays with it the entire time. He keeps, he keeps coming back in different, um, 
in, in different ways. I mean, he's he's dead, but there's, you know, prequel novels and things like that where he returns. Right. And I think in my research when I was looking at Lord Sop, before we get into our first impressions on his entire backstory, I also you, you mentioned that he was reincarnated or he, he lives on as a death knight. And I think most images that Wizard of the Coast uses to portray death knights they are aren't they supposed to be technically lord soft so if you look into like the fifth edition monster manual and you look at a death knight which is like a cr what like 17 foe it's supposed to be lord it's based off lord soft or it's supposed to be lord soft something like that so even if you don't know who lord soft is you might have seen him somewhere yeah if you've seen the if in the fifth edition monster manual the picture that's used to represent a death knight in the book is the is the classic image of Lord Zoth. Um, and the I think they even have his a little blurb about him, like his backstory. Um, oh. I think the idea yeah. in a fifth edition monster manual is that a death knight is supposed to be a fallen paladin. And so they give a little bit of backstory to be like, this is how you can have a fallen, this is how your death knight can have this fallen paladin backstory. Very cool. So before we get, I think, into the analysis part, because Liz and I kind of split up the research for this episode, so it was my uh, duty to research a little bit of Lord Soth, and she went on to <laughs> Vampire Daddy, uh, Count Strahd, uh, petitioned to call Count Strahd Vampire Daddy. That's what he likes to be called, I think. I'm sure. He has to. I mean, come <laughs> on. Before we get into the analysis part, so I, it's just not just me and you doing a bunch of back and forth on Lord Soth specifically. Lisa, do you have any like first impressions of Lord Soth after hearing like his entire backstory? I think the thing that jumps out to me most is just male entitlement. Like, just I I want this woman. Gimme. Okay, never mind. I don't want her. I want that woman. Gimme. Actually, no, this third woman. Gimme her instead. Just, yeah. I think yeah. he goes through four, think... four different women in the course of his story. Oh, God. Oh, great. See, yeah. So just male entitlement, I think, is just the, the thing that jumps out at me the most. I mean, yeah, I think you could definitely say that Lord Soth is kind of like the poster child for male entitlement and also the poster child of what, matricide? Or what is that? Like when you kill your wife, is that mm. matricide? I don't remember. Uh, no, that's, that's um, it's got a special but, term. It's like, it's like uxorcide or something like wow. that. It's, it's from the Latin word. It, the Latin word for wife, I think, is ux, U-X. That okay. So it's yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. Because I know it's fratricide, uh, sororicide, matricide, patricide. So mother, father, yeah. sister, brother. But I don't know the ones specifically. But I what you said sounds correct. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, but it's something like that. It's fine. I do have one. The killing of a spouse. Yeah, the killing of a spouse. I do have one clarification question before like mm -hmm. we kind of analyze soth a bit more so when I, I when i was doing my research on like lord soth and his backstory and stuff it was said that by the end when he died he was going towards redemption or that he was redeemed as a villain 
And I wanted to get like your take on that or is it like in a fi- in the books or in the lore that you know of, of Lord Soth, is it ever explicitly said that he, after everything that he's done, even though he, you know, does that one redeeming thing maybe that he denies to Kesis, like is it ever hinted at that he is actually redeemed after all of these really shitty, like Lisa said, male entitlement things that he does? It's suggested that he does he, that he is redeemed. Um, not so much that he does something that makes up for what he did, but more that he feels genuine remorse for what he did. Um, so redemption might be a redemption might be a bit of a strong way to put it, but um, he definitely reaches that point where he sees sort of what he's become and he feels remorse for all the people he's hurt. Well, sorry, specifically he feels remorse for killing his, uh, his elven wife, Isolde. There doesn't seem to be much mention of all the other people that he's killed, but he feels remorse, genuine remorse for killing her. And that's, that seems to be enough. That seems to be as good as he's going to get. And I actually have a passage if you'd like me to read it. Sure. About his redemption specifically. Um, it's sort of about how he's feeling at the sort of at the last moments before he's oh, killed. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, we can go. You can go ahead and read that, and then we can do a little bit of slovenly analysis. <laughs> <laughs> this is from a Dragonlance novel called Dragons of a Vanished Moon. This is after Lord Soth leaves Ravenloft and comes back to Dragonlance. There's a part where Lord Soth is kind of just hanging around his castle. Um, and he's reflecting on the person that he was. And this is, so this is kind of a passage that I like because it shows a little bit of introspection on Soth's part. So this is just him sort of thinking to himself and he's he's thinking, and, and this is the passage. Courage, he smiled bitterly. Once he'd imagined himself afraid of nothing. Over time, he'd come to realize he'd been afraid of everything. He had lived his life in fear. Fear of failure, fear of weakness, fear that people would despise him if they truly knew him. Most of all, he had feared that he would, most of all, he had feared that she would despise him. Once she found out the man she adored was just an ordinary man, not the paragon of virtue and courage she believed him. So that's kind of Soth just ruminating on, reflecting on his life before, how he had been perceived as this great and virtuous knight and that he had felt like he had to live up to that expectation despite knowing that it was all a sham and that attempt to live up to that expectation had basically fallen apart or blown up in his face Um, and there's a part a little bit later let me find it so this is this is lord soth speaking to mina mina is the disciple of tachesis who has come um, to Dargard Keep, trying to recruit him to fight for Tukesis. And Lord Soth is looking at the floor of the castle and seeing where his wife Asol died. And he says to Mina, I see a pool of blood. I see my beloved wife lying in her blood. I see the blood of all those who perished because my fear kept me from accepting the blessings of the gods offered to me. Long ago, uh, long have I been forced to stare at that stain. And long have I loathed the very sight of it. Now I kneel on it, he said, bending his knees on the stone. I kneel in her blood and the blood of all who died because I was afraid. I beg her to forgive me for the wrong I did to her. I beg them all to forgive me. 
And that's it. That's sort of that. That's as close as we get. And maybe he, he doesn't. I wouldn't say that he redeems himself, but I would say he dies with a sense of understanding himself. It kind of gives and me feeling cool murder, cool motive, still murder vibes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, for sure. Lisa, what do you think? I think cool motive, still murder. That is exactly the thing that I, I was thinking um, when I did research on my person. Um, oh. And and I was just like, cool motive, still murder. Still male entitlement, and I still hate it. <laughs> well, speaking of speaking of male entitlement, um, we should probably get into the analysis part or else we're not going to have much discussion to do. Um, sure. But- yeah, so when I was doing a bit of research, because I have a background in writing and studying English and literature, this story kind of felt familiar to me. So here on the Slavonly Trolls, we try to contextualize things, kind of maybe explain why things are the way that they are. Um, we ca- probably could have done more and more research on this, but we wanted to, to base this episode more in discussion. So these are just a couple of kind of points that I found that might point to maybe why the authors, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Lord South was created by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman originally, who created the Dragonland series, right? Right. They created the character. Um, and then it was, uh, it was, his backstory was fleshed out a lot by a, uh, by a writer named James Louder, the one who wrote um, Night of right. the Black Rose and yes. Night of the, or Inspector of the Black Rose, as well as an author named Ido Van Belcombe, who wrote Soth's, the standalone novel that's about Soth while he's alive. So Margaret Rice and Tracy Hickman created the character, and then it was fleshed out by other writers. Gotcha. So it's kind of, Lord Soth is kind of this love child of multiple different authors, which even, yeah, makes things, you know, analyzing this kind of character even more complicated, because a lot of authors have had their hands on him they've written for him they fleshed him out more so I kind of focus my research yeah a bit more on just overarching themes that kind of struck true to me and might provide a little bit of context as to while our initial reactions are like oh male entitlement cool motive still murder maybe explaining a bit more why he is the way that he is and in my research I found this trope called The Lost Lenore. Is anyone familiar with The Lost Lenore? Like from The Raven? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, the it's ra- from The Raven. Mm-hmm. It's an entire The Raven trope. Loft? The, the Raven Loft. The connections are <laughs> everywhere. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a trope based on Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, which is very fitting because Strahd especially has some very gothic themes in his backstory and his story, but also I would argue Lord Soth does as well. Um, so The Lost Lenore is – it has to fit a criteria of a couple different things. So it actually isn't about Lord Soth per se, but it's about the women in his life, as specifically I believe his two wives – so in order for a character to be a lost Lenore, um, it has to be the love interest of a prominent character. They have to be dead or some equivalent of dead or genuinely believed to be dead before the story begins. Or they have to die pretty early on in the story. And their death has significant ongoing impact, consequences, and relevance for the remainder of the story. And a kind of caveat, other than those three, is 
it also must be clear that the character grieved strongly for the lost Lenore, which I think Lord Soth and his wives fits that pretty well. Like each of the wives, I would argue more the elven wife, his his second wife is sold, has more of an impact. So maybe she is more of the lost Lenore because I don't, I see a lot of people talking about Lord Soth, but then my, you know, feminist ass was just like, but what about the women though? And there really isn't a whole lot of, information on them and that's probably because they fit into this trope where they while they are characters with motivations they also fit into this literary trope and I remember seeing it in so many different places and I you know you see this lost Lenore trope in I found like Severus Snape from the Harry Potter series uh, Robert Baratheon from Game of Thrones Archibald Craven from The Secret Garden most most men who have wives in any Christopher Nolan movie or girlfriends, Darth Vader, and then also for some reason he gave me Mister Freeze vibes, like the the Batman villain Mister Freeze. Even though his oh, wife isn't yeah. technically dead, but he yeah. all his motivations are because his wife is has terminal illness and is frozen. Spoilers for those who don't know Batman. That's what Mister Freeze is all about that's the basic characters i don't think that's a spoiler really you know well i'm pretty picky with spoilers so <laughs> i don't know i i don't know if it would be considered a spoiler i don't know could spoiler you guys... alert he has a freeze ray <laughs> spoiler alert Ooh. he's played by arnold schwarzenegger <laughs> the uh, former governor of california <laughs> I don't know. Do you, how, what do you guys feel about the lost Lenore? I mean, if, even if you weren't familiar with the trope, could you maybe think of any other characters that could fit it? Or do you think it is a good fit for the women in Lord Soth's life? It's a good fit. I think that I also kind of see that for my character, for uh, Count Strahd as well. But um, yeah, I think it's... It it's very typical of like way to I guess understand the workings behind the person or to like give them depth kind of of here here's a character here's who they love let's kill off this person and show how they're like emotionally impacted you know and how how deep of this feeling they are and how much they had this love in them and ooh you know brooding and all this stuff i think it it makes for an interesting character i guess does it do you think that the lost lenore then it's not about making the love interest an interesting character it's more about like serving the character who is mourning them it it makes the women a plot device because it's not really about the women it's it's about the lack of women it's it's about um, not having the woman. So it's really about the person who lost the other person. So about Soth, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. Can I, I suggest I... an inversion of the... Can I suggest an inversion of the lost Lenore trope? Oh my gosh, yes, please. Uh, I'm going to take it back to Twilight again. <laughs> Oh, God. The second, oh, no. The second Twilight novel oh, no. when, when Bella thinks that. Oh, dear. <laughs> Bella thinks that Edward is dead, and then it becomes all about how sad Bella is. I mean. I guess that's not. I mean, that's you know, kind of right. At least it can happen either way. 
Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. you can gender flip it. I don't think it has to be necessarily a woman in order to be a lost Lenore. I just think it's stereotypically woman. But wow, props to Twilight for like flipping a trope <laughs> on its head. I'll get pops where it's due. I'm not a big Twilight fan, but I've read all of the books when I was in my Twilight phase, you know. Interesting. I like that. It can't, yeah, I think it definitely can be flipped on its head, but traditionally it's more women, but for sure. Yeah. Um, when I was doing my uh, research to prepare for this episode, I was I was thinking of this character called Bluebeard. Have you ever heard of Bluebeard? I, Not Blackbeard the pirate, but Bluebeard. I feel like I've heard the name before, but you're definitely going to so, have to refresh my memory. So Bluebeard is this character who marries a woman who has had... Uh, Bluebeard is a a man who marries a woman and he has had a number of wives who go missing. And in the story, he has a room or he has a a cabinet or a something in his house where the new wife is not ever permitted to go or to look in. And eventually she breaks the rules and she goes to see whatever it is that he's hiding. And it turns out to be the remains of all his previous wives. Um, And so that's something that was sort of in the back the back of my head when I was thinking about Lord Soth and trying to imagine antecedents to to his story in in sort of gothic literature. And I decided to look a little bit more into this Bluebeard story to find out, you know, where it came from. And it turns out that it's not a story in the sense, it's not a story in the sense that Dracula is a specific story written by a specific person. It's more like a folktale. Um, so this this folktale or this cautionary tale of this man who murders all these women and then he just keeps acquiring more. That made me think of Lord Soth um, as this man who is essentially a serial wife. He, you know, he kills his yeah. first wife. He's responsible for the death of his second wife. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't kill Lorana, but he tries to, and he ultimately orchestrates Kitiara's death. Um, that's sort of how I, that's how I saw Lord Soth within a more literary framework. I think he fits into that archetype. Yeah, I, I, that's a really good point. I, I think, and it's, it's very interesting that that's also a got. It's, it's considered a gothic piece of literature too. And do you know what year that story came out? Could it be safely kind of maybe assumed or kind of speculated that Lord Soth's backstory, his personhood as a villain was somewhat impacted by stories like that because some of these other characters that I mentioned like maybe from the raven they could have taken from um maybe from the secret garden but a lot of these other examples that I found were more modern so I couldn't necessarily say that Lord Soth was inspired by a lot of these characters that I was personally familiar with so do you think that if the Bluebeard story is a bit older that it could potentially have been an inspiration I believe that it's from, I believe that it first appeared in Grimm's Fairy Tales in print. Um, although the story would have, the story would have existed previously. It would have been, it started as like an oral story or a, a folk tale that was written down by the, by the Brothers Grimm. Wow. So it definitely yeah. would have preceded Lord Soth by, I mean, it would have been, it would have been right around in the era of Gothic fiction, although it would have been in Germany rather than in England. Um, and then I also, of course, thought of Henry VIII. I think there's definitely parallels between Lord Soth oh, yeah. and Henry VIII. 
I mean, he has just so a I, litany of <laughs> dead wives behind him. Yeah, I imagine those. I imagine those two, either the real character of Henry VIII and the fictional character of Bluebeard, might have had an influence on the creation of Lord Soth, or at least, you know, these sort of figures exist within the zeit, the literary zeitgeist, and so it's not too difficult to imagine these writers when they're creating this character drawing upon this well of previously existing characters to inform Lord Zong. It is it's funny that you mentioned this because we're just about out of time for this particular segment but I think it's an interesting point to be made that especially since you brought up Henry VIII that I think it could be also said that Lord Soth also has some inspiration maybe from I don't know real life a little bit so i went in on a bit of a deep hole dive accidentally accidentally on purpose accidentally. on purpose accidentally on purpose while i was researching this just to see if there were any any other connections that we could make this episode and i went on a deep dive of statistics of men who murder their families <laughs> oh lovely and you do you we don't keeping have that to. keeping the tone nice and light. I know, nice and light. That's that's how I like it. I'm a very nice and light person. So <laughs> this is the true this is the true crime section of the podcast. It really true is, crime yeah. Is very popular. And I don't. <laughs> it is. That's very true. We could, you know, scrap our whole podcast. We can just like list this under true crime and get like twelve times the viewers. Um, <laughs> but we don't have to analyze this bit at all. But I just think it's interesting to point out because it's a very somber topic and. These are people that actually exist and in real life. And it's, it's a subject that has to be treated with the utmost care. Um, so I found some U.S. Department of Justice statistics about um, people who murder their spouses, essentially. And both of them surveyed eight to 9,000 murders that occurred, I believe, in about five-year spans, each of these studies. So the first one was from was published in the year 19 no it was just about murders that were done in 1988 and of 8000 murder victims and 6.5% of all murders were murders where a spouse was killed so it was spouse on spouse violence so 6.5% and of that 6.5% 45% of the victims were women and 60% of them were killed by their husbands. And then uh, flash forward about 10 years, I found another survey from the same U.S. Department of Justice report. Well, the same type of report, different year. From 1988 to 2002, 8.6% uh, of murders were spouse-on-spouse -spouse violence. So it jumped up a bit. And 43. 1% of those murder victims were women and 81% were killed by their husbands. Holy crap. It was like, it was a lot bigger of a jump than I was anticipating. Yeah. <laughs> and that 81% of all women who are murdered are murdered by their husbands. Not technically. So this was a specifically about um, family murders. So they they did a survey oh, of family murder cases. And sometimes it was a family friend. Sometimes it was a, uh, a grandparent. Sometimes it was a, 
sister or a brother. But if you are a woman in a familial murder case, there's an 80% chance that you were murdered by your husband, which mm. isn't surprising. It's still sad, but unfortunately not surprising because you have these examples. You gave an example of a man named Drew Peterson who killed his wife. And then there's also the more modern example of Chris Watts, who has a whole Netflix documentary about what he did to his fa- to his wife and children. But usually, I think also from these statistics, it's more common for, again, this is very somber, very grim, trigger warning. You could skip ahead five minutes if you don't want to hear this. But it's usually a murder-suicide, not just murder and then going off and living your life. It's usually a murder-suicide, which was also interesting because Lord Soth and Count Strahd are still living. They're undead. But they're still well, characters. You could even call what Soth does a murder-suicide. Because suppose, yeah. he he kills, he's, he doesn't exactly murder Isolde. Um, it's not like he, he doesn't stab her or hit her, but he's causes her death. And then he just goes and sits down on his throne and he lets the fire consume him. Um, he doesn't realize he's going to be born reborn as a death knight. Um, so he, in his mind, he's killing himself, but then he comes back to life. So that's, um, so, I mean, I can, that I can sort of see that actually. And yeah. I think that it's, it's something that we see a lot with Soth and also with Strahd and also just sort of with serial killers in general or family annihilators yeah. or, or wife killers is, is this sense that the the other person the wife is an extension of the man and is the property of the man and yeah mm-hmm. he can't have her or she doesn't do what he wants yeah then that's such a a blow so in the in the to- toxically masculine male taken to the extreme most extreme version they can't it's such a wound to their pride to have their wife not under their control that all mm-hmm. they can do is kill them. And then in the act of committing suicide, they avoid any justice for their actions. There was actually, I, I, I did read up a study um, in preparation for this episode of, um, they, there was this uh, couple called Rebecca and Russell Dobash. Um, and this was in the UK. They uh, in, basically interviewed uh, murders in the UK for about 10 years um in kind of research for the University of Manchester and they essentially found that um women are like and they wrote a book about it i think it's called men men killing women um and it's they found that women are murdered by sexually jealous possessive controlling men and that i i do have of a quote and like and they did say that a majority of them do kill their partners of these men um and i have a quote from russell dobash and he says the real issue is a sense of entitlement in masculine culture which is so prevalent the idea that men have to be in control and that's why they kill women is because they can't have them or because they're not in control of the woman and the woman does something else and therefore 
they take it upon themselves to end their lives, which is really sad. I think that's absolutely spot on in the case of Lord Saw. His wife, yeah. his first wife won't produce the heir that he thinks he's entitled to. So he kills her. And then his second wife is sold. Um, he believes that she's unfaithful to him. And so she, he lets her die or he, um, he, his actions contribute to her death. Um, and then again with Lorana and then with Kitiara, it's like he needs to have complete control over them. He can't just be infatuated with them as a living independent person. He needs them to be transformed in his, into his eternal slave wives. Eternal slave wives. <laughs> That's a way to put mm-hmm. it. Well, <laughs> on that beautiful note, we're just about out of time <laughs> for this section. Um, so we can go ahead and move on to Lissa's section, part two, Count Strahd. So part two, uh, we're going to do Count Strahd von Zarevich, who is, as I've been told, a character in the Ravenloft series. Um, in particular, I think he's in one book called Vampire of the Mist from 1991 by Christy Golden. Um, Megan, what can you tell us about Strahd, Count Strahd, rather? So Strahd is, was first created by Laura Hickman and Tracy Hickman, I believe in 1978, um, as a villain to be in their new campaign module or their new adventure module, which came to be known as Ravenloft, based on the name of Strahd's castle, which is Castle Ravenloft. Um, the character uh, is sort of, he's evolved over the course of time. He appeared in the original Ravenloft adventure module and then a sequel called House on Griffin Hill. And then he was transported into his own campaign sitting, setting when the second edition Ravenloft campaign setting came out. And then he's also appeared in, he first appears in the novel Vampire of the Mists, but much later on, he actually gets a two-part series of novels that are all about him. They're supposed to be written from his point of view called memoirs of a called I Strahd is the is the name of that series but in his backstory is that he was born as the oldest son of a noble family and the family tradition is that the oldest son is supposed to become a military officer so Strahd goes off and becomes an officer he's a very skilled tactician he rises through the ranks and eventually becomes the leader of an army fighting against a goblin kingdom And the war that he's fighting goes on and on and on. And eventually they're victorious. But by the time the war is won, Strahd is now in middle age. He's kind of past the prime of his life. He's missed out on his youth. He spent his entire life on campaign. Uh, But he decides to settle down in in an idyllic land called Barovia. And he builds his home, Castle Ravenloft. Once he's settled in Barovia, he takes on the life of the the manor lord. He's ruling over peasants and these minor nobles, and it's all very boring. And he's kind of missing, not missing the life of the soldier, but after spending his entire life on the battlefield, just hanging out in a castle, dealing with these petty local issues is very dull for him. 
Um, and he's starting to feel the, the weight of his age. He's starting to feel as if he's missed out on the best years of his life. Um, and at this time, he invites his brother, his youngest brother, Sergei, to come live with him. And the two of them have kind of a fraught relationship. Uh, Strahd loves Sergei, but he is also very resentful of him because he sees in Sergei what he himself might have been. Strahd, or Sergei is young and he's handsome and he's charming and he's in the prime of his life and he's got his whole future ahead of him. And Strahd just feels a sense of bitterness. And it becomes even worse when Sergei meets and falls in love with a commoner named Tatiana Fedorovna. And he brings Tatiana back to Castle Ravenloft to meet uh, his older brother. And Strahd immediately becomes infatuated with Tatiana. She's described as being very beautiful, very kindly, very vivacious, full of life. And Strahd's infatuation with her eventually turns into obsession. He feels that she belongs with him. Uh, Sergei doesn't deserve her. She should be she should be sort of his reward for a lifetime of service fighting against evil. Um, and he begins to study magic to try to find a way to make Tatiana fall in love with him. Um, on the, the day that Tatiana and Sergei are due to be married, he gets a visit from this dark entity that he refers to as death. And death makes him an offer saying that he will make Strahd immortal and will give him Tatiana. And in exchange, Strahd needs to kill his brother Sergei and drink his blood. So uh, Strahd, on the day of his wedding, invites Sergei into his study, stabs him, licks his blood off the knife, and he is transformed into a vampire. Strahd then goes to Tatiana, saying that now that Sergei is out of the way, the two of them can be together. And rather than being thrilled at this news, uh, Tatiana freaks out and runs away from him. Um, Strahd pursues Tatiana. <laughs> Strahd pursues Tatiana to the roof or the the roof of the castle, where she throws herself off rather than to be bound to him. Um, in a rage, Strahd goes back down, where all the wedding guests are still standing around, wondering what the hell is taking so long, and he murders every guest at the wedding. Um, with this act, the the land that he lives in, Barovia, is transported from its from its world into what would become known as the Demiplane of Dread or the Demiplane of Ravenloft. Um, and from there, he rules over Barovia for centuries as a vampire. Um, and the, the land, which was once beautiful and pristine, becomes gloomy and full of despair. And he is just the unquestioned lord and master. And um, But he's being tormented himself by the dark powers. The dark powers are the beings that are sort of in control of all of Ravenloft. And what they're doing is making Tatiana become reincarnated about once a generation. And every time that she's reincarnated, Strahd finds her, tries to woo her or claim her, or possess her, or whatever you want to call it. And she ultimately ends up slipping through his fingers. And then the whole process repeats over again on and on and on forever. And that's Count Strahd. Isn't it um, based on Dracula? Um, it Count is. Hmm. Yeah, have I you... have, um... sorry, go ahead. Yeah, have you, have you read Dracula? I read Dracula, I read it a few times actually. Okay, uh, how do you think, like how does, um, 
how does Strahd's story compare to Dracula? Would you say? Well, it's it, it's interesting because in a lot of ways there's a lot of similarities, not just sort of in in the fact that they're about a vampire and sort of the the gothic setting of the crumbling ruinous castle. But I think that the character of Strahd, as he's originally conceived, is very much intended to be a reflection of the early vampire stories. So that's Dracula is obviously the best known one. But mm-hmm. there's also another novel that was written. Uh, it's actually a short story that's called, it's just called The Vampire. Um, it was written by an author named John Polidori. And John Polidori was present for the ghost story contest, which was also the originator of Frankenstein. So this story, The Vampire and Frankenstein, have the same root together. And, and The Vampire is said to have heavily influenced Bram Stoker. So these two, these two vampire characters, Dracula and Lord, Lord Ruthven from The Vampire, um, were both clearly inspirations for Count Strahd. And I actually have a quote here from um from tracy hickman describing about how he wanted the vampire character and his as his villain to be completely unsympathetic to not be the sort of romanticized vampire that we've come to know and so he drew on the he drew on those um, archetypes that had existed before Um, and let me find uh let me find his quote here um so this is, this is Tracy Hickman speaking, and he says, Strahd is a classic abusive monster who is, at his root, selfish. And I think that that's sort of what was intended for Strahd and something that's been a little bit lost, not only in Strahd, but in vampires in general. Now they're treated as, treated as these sympathetic kind of anti-heroes or, you know, you've got your Lestats and your um, Edward Cullens and, and these vampires that are meant to be the protagonists. And Strahd is not meant to be the protagonist. Strahd is meant to be pure, selfish evil. That's and I think that's what that's what was intended with Dracula in the beginning too. Yeah, that's interesting because the the one book that I did um, read about um, was the Vampire of the Mist, and that's essentially a story where um, uh, Tatiana's soul or a portion of it comes back in a woman called Anna. Um, and essentially this is a, she's a woman in a mental asylum or like an insane asylum, um, because having a portion of a reincarnated soul makes you crazy or something. Have you read that book? Yeah. So in Vampire the Mists, Anna is a a woman in an asylum in Faerun. So she's not even in Ravenloft at the time. Okay. And it, a vampire named Jander Sunstar meets her and falls in love with her. Uh, and Anna is, I'm not sure exactly how you would characterize her condition. It's not, you know, some diagnosis that you can find in the diagnostic manual, but yeah. it's, it's more like I would call it an extreme form of PTSD. Mm. Um, the, the horror of what Strahd, what's implied is that the horror of what Strahd did um, in killing Sergei and then driving Tatiana to kill herself, the horror of it was so much that it shattered Tatiana's mind. And she's, she's just not, she's basically catatonic at that point. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a little bit unclear whether Anna is supposed to be Tatiana reincarnated or if she's literally supposed to be Tatiana. Um, mm, like Tatiana okay. jumped off jumped off the top of Castle Ravenloft and disappeared and reappeared in Faerun as this insane woman who got locked in an asylum. Mm. Um, that's not entirely clear, but either way, the implication is that what Strahd did drove Tatiana or drove Anna insane. Mm. And then yeah. Jander, Jander Sunstar meets her and falls in love with her. Yeah, I got, I got like, you brought up Twilight already, so I feel okay bringing it up again. I got like, very big Edward Cullen vibes from Jander Sunstar. Um, he's like, I think he's portrayed as like the, the good vampire, or he tries to be good or something, and then he goes to try and uh, fight Strahd in revenge for anna because she dies spoiler alert um so yeah i'm just i'm just putting it out there like uh what was it that i was reading um oh yeah they say jander has skin pale as gold and expressive silver eyes and he's a sympathetic character because he has a burnt left hand does he sparkle does he does he sparkle well he has he has gold skin today so uh that doesn't pale answer gold my skin that doesn't answer my question gold can gold shine. sparkles okay gold sparkles. That's all I he, d- to know. he doesn't sparkle he can't go in the sun yeah yeah and he he looks like that because he's an elf so he looked like that before <gasps> he was a vampire too wait wait, 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 wait wait so are we saying that elves all have sparkly skin <laughs> i think that's canon now Oh my god! I think Shredder just came. I think we're saying I think we're saying that Edward Cullen was an elf all along. Don't no 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 don't ruin that. Don't no 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 no. no. I just want <laughs> I want elves perhaps to Robert have Patton himself is a wolf, is a elf. Well, I, I can um, you know what? I can live with that. Robert Pattinson seems like a cool <laughs> dude. Edward is a character, absolutely not. Robert Pattinson, yes, please. I think yeah. that um. Jander represents the kind of vampire that Tracy Hickman was talking about in that quote as sort of the opposite of what Strahd is. So Strahd is the original kind of vampire, the selfish monster vampire. And then Jander is the more sympathetic. He's like, um, he's like Angel from Buffy or he's um, Louie from Interview with the Vampire. He's got a conscience. He's, he doesn't like what he is or what he's forced to do in order to survive. He's supposed to be a more sympathetic character, unlike Strahd, who's not supposed to be sympathetic. Um, so have you played Curse of Strahd or any other Ravenloft-themed campaign? Well, I've played a little bit of Curse of Strahd. I was in a group where we were playing Curse of Strahd, and then my dungeon master, due to unfortunate real-life time issues, was not able to keep going, so we sort of had to abandon our campaign. Mm-hmm. So I've played a little bit of it. I've not gone th- through most of it. Um, but I actually run two different Ravenloft campaigns uh, in my own groups. So yeah, That's I've really got cool. two separate groups going at the moment. So I am well, well-versed in the world of Ravenloft. Mm. And... Curse of Strahd. Curse of Strahd is a fifth edition reboot to the original 
Dragonland, or sorry, is a fifth edition reboot to the original Ravenloft module that was written in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. It's sort of an updated and expanded version of that same module. Um, yeah. It has to do with, both of them have to do with the a reincarnation of Tatiana called uh, Elena Koyana, I believe, is has been resurrected in, or not resurrected, Tatiana has been reincarnated in this form in Barovia and Strahd is trying to find her and the heroes are trying to protect her and also to defeat Strahd in the process. And there's kind of some modern updates between the original and the fifth edition one. Um, For example, uh, Arena has a bit more agency. Um, There's a bit more options for her. So there's it, depending on how the characters or depending on how the players play out the adventure, she can be taken by Strahd and becomes his vampire bride and he gets what he wants. Or she can be reunited with the spirit of Sergei. Or she can even join the adventures and help them to take down Strahd. So Tatiana gets to be a little bit more of a dynamic character, um, especially in Curse of Strahd. Okay. Um, it's sort of. I would say that Vampire of the Mists kind of takes place in between, takes place in between Tatiana's um, because Tatiana is reincarnated once every generation. And at the time that Jander arrives in Barovia, the most recent incarnation of Tatiana has just died. And by the end of the novel, Strahd is out searching for the new incarnation of Tatiana. And there's a gap of, you know, 20 or 25 years in between. Um, but at the same time, Jander is searching for, he's searching for the truth about Anna. He doesn't realize Anna was Tatiana. He's trying to figure out who Anna was, what happened to her. All he knows is that she was from Barovia. And so in a sense, the Vampire of the Mists is kind of like that adventure in the sense that Jander is a stand-in for the party trying to protect this particular incarnation of Tatiana. But the the novel Vampire of the Mists and the the adventure Curse of Strahd or the adventure Ravenloft kind of take parallel tracks. They're similar to each other, and they they're built on the same mythology, but the story itself is very different. Vampire of the Mists is very much a character story. It's not so much about adventurers off on a quest. It's more about Jander sitting around Castle Ravenloft reading books. So. There's a lot of differences, but the two definitely inform inform one another. And if you, okay. and it's spoiler alerts too. If you'd if you'd read Vampire of the Mists, you would not be surprised by anything in Curse of Strahd, and vice versa. Mm. Yeah, the revelation of Tatiana yeah. reincarnated is supposed to be this kind of twist. Mm. So spoiler alert: if you uh, want to play Curse of Strahd. <laughs> Actual spoiler oh, yeah. alert, not like my weird spoiler alert that I did before, but Mr. Freeze. <laughs> <laughs> that Mr. Freeze is a backstory. I'm just trying um, to be careful, okay? So I, we've covered uh, pretty much the questions that I had. Um, we're going to go on to do, I'm going to do some analysis. I mean, it's a really big topic, so I don't know if I'm going to do everything that I researched, but um, I'm going to do some of it. Um, so essentially, the Curse of Strahd and Dracula are based on gothic horror, and I think that in itself is kind of um, makes them very similar to each other. 
Um, they're both aristocrats. They come from a powerful family. They have fortune. They have a castle by town. Um, and their characters are quite similar. They're like the main antagonist, um, probably described as very evil, very angular features, very typical like vampire stuff. Um, they're both proud, jealous, and fall in love with. Well, I don't know. So, does um, I don't know if uh, Strahd has this, but Dracula for me, because I I did read Dracula, um, when I was younger, and uh, I studied the book um when I was in high school. Uh, he kind of he kind of gives me like bisexual vibes with um his relationship between or the relationship between him and Jonathan Harker, but I don't know. Megan, does uh, Strahd give any kind of, or is he just kind of in love with women only? Well, Lisa, I'm glad you asked that question. I... <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually reading an analysis of Dracula in preparation for this episode that talked about how one of the things about Dracula that's supposed to be scary is the idea of a man sort of dominating another man in this very visceral bodily fluids way like when he's got you know he's drinking blood from jonathan harker or um he's like draining draining men of their vitality and supposedly according to this whatever i was reading suggested that bram stoker might have been might have been closeted um there is not there is not an explicit bisexuality to strahd Vampire of the Mists, or in Curse of Strahd, as far as I'm aware. But the new Ravenloft book, which just came out a month or two ago, has very bisexual vibes for Strahd. There's actually an entire there's an entire two pages of the of the campaign setting guide all about Tatiana and how to do Tatiana in the new Ravenloft, and it suggests a number of different incarnations that she can have, and a couple of the incarnations are male. So the idea is that Tatiana is reincarnated into the body, is reincarnated as a man. And then Strahd, Strahd doesn't care if it's a man or a woman. He just wants, he just wants her, whatever form she's in. Yeah. So I think there's a bit, supposed to be a little bit of queer coding going on there, or at least an option that the players can play around with. I mean, they could even, in theory, a player, or in theory, a dungeon master could have Tatiana have never been female. She could mm. always have been male and just reincarnated as a male over and over again. There's no reason that she has to be female within the game. Mm-hmm. But in the original context, it definitely is presented as a heterosexual a heterosexual relationship. Um, I think that was pretty par for the course in terms of the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. you've also got, at the same time, you've also got Interview with the Vampire, um, and the sort of coded queer relationship between Louis and Lestat. And I think there's certain elements of that in Vampire of the Mists between yeah. gender and strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think just gothic horror in itself. Like, gothic is kind of romantic in a way, or like a romanticized kind of horror, I would say, myself. I don't know what Chardet would say as the... Uh, "Quote unquote author, writer <laughs> in this uh, trio here. I mean, yeah, gothic 
I believe it, it's not my genre of expertise, but from what I know of it, it romanticizes a lot of things that conventionally are not romanticized or if it or even if they are conventionally romanticized, it just is so blatant about it. Like, it, you know, like the whole goth culture, it romanticizes death and mm-hmm. romanticizes darkness and romanticizes like all of these overarching themes that are supposed to make people uncomfortable but instead kind of twists them in a way that while still making people uncomfortable it elicits other emotions like love and lust and desire and um intrigue and mystery you know it's like this weird amalgamation of that Mm -hmm. instead of being like yeah go go ahead i think gothic literature in its way is kind of intended to celebrate deviation a little bit. Um, If you consider the context that a lot of Gothic Gothic literature is written, it's in sort of the the early, the second half of the 1800s. And we think of that time, the Victorian society is being sort of very tightly wound and there's not a lot of room to be different, but in Gothic literature, characters can can deviate from the norm and so I think I think that's probably why it was popular as a genre at the time yeah it's kind of like an underculture sort of in a way counterculture uh, yeah um counter not underculture counterculture that's the word I'm looking for <laughs> both is yep good. I think underculture so I, is more of a goth term to be completely fair it's like <laughs> undercroft underculture yes you know I'm I'm definitely totally meant, a goth you totally meant that that way mm-hmm. yes I'm because mm-hmm. I'm a goth yes um so yeah I think like the death of women I think in in these stories of kind of horror and even probably also men but I think specifically with women because we've been talking about with Lord Soth and now Lord our Count Strahd um I think the death of women is very much like a poetic thing that is I don't know if it's celebrated but it's it's almost like um portray- yeah it's portrayed in a way that it's um according to Edgar Allan Poe um the death of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world um so I think it I think it tries to be like very symbolic um and putting like virtues like purity and chastity and like innocence on women and then you know they're beautiful and then they die and and it's this big whole like thing and and I think that's one of the things that is goes on in Dracula and, and in Strahd is like these women are like in in like in Soth, um, they're just a plot device. Um, and I did find a trope um, that I, it's it's kind of like the Lenore trope. Um, so it's called disposable woman, um, and this character has a romantic relationship with a protagonist, which allows creators to derive heart-wrenching sorrow from their death and essentially it's just they are a plot device um so when tatiana off jumps off the 
cliff or the or falls off the um castle i think you said um yeah she jumps off the roof of the castle yeah i didn't i didn't find much information on tatiana i don't know how how much they wrote about her character in that way but like i can like there was that like sort of innocence and by kind of vibrant character and then she's killed and then it becomes this sorrow to Strahd in a way to make him kind of, I guess, interesting? Tragic? Tragic, yeah. Doomed. Tragic. Doomed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, think there's... Mm, go ahead. There's a lot about Tatiana that fits that kind of trope that you're describing in the sense that she's portrayed originally as this beautiful, virtuous um, woman who everybody loves and she loves everybody and she's just the ideal human being, basically. Um, And then her story ends in this very dramatic fashion with her and her her wedding dress plunging off the top of this castle and vanishing into the mists below. And I think that that's meant to be very evocative, just like the death of Lord Soth's wife impaled by a fallen chandelier and her dress catching on fire and her cursing Soth as the flames are consuming her. I think it's all meant to be very evocative to have these beautiful, virtuous, kind women who have nothing but love in their hearts for the rest of the world brought to these gruesome, but also kind of poetic deaths. And there's also sort of this um, religious connotation underneath, because um, it it very much um, Rod killing his brother is very much I think a reference to Cain and Abel, in mm-hmm. which you have two brothers, um, or in the original story, two brothers given give an offering to the Lord. Um, one is accepted by the Lord, the other is not. Um, this is Cain. Cain's is not accepted, Abel's is. So Cain becomes jealous of Abel and he kills him. And in kind of like uh, a weird twist of fate, um, Cain is cursed by the Lord, kind of. Um, and he's he's told that... Uh, yeah, he's cursed and Cain is, then cannot be killed. Um, or anyone who kills him will be will suffer vengeance seven times over in quotes um so he's also this like gloomy kind of tortured soul which i think very much fits strad as well in the lore of vampire the masquerade kane is the original vampire what ah. i didn't know yeah. that <laughs> That makes so much sense. Look at all of these lines that we're connecting today. Wow. <laughs> he's transformed after killing Abel. He is essentially transformed into a vampire. He wanders the world and makes more mm-hmm. vampires. And they're the he's the originator of all the vampires in Vampire the Masquerade. Mm-hmm. Ma- vampire the Masquerade, what year did that originally come out? Could that have been also influenced by Strahd's appearance in like the Ravenloft books and then later the adventures that feature him as a villain? Or did Vampire the Masquerade come first? No, Vampire the Masquerade was 1992. Okay. So uh, it would have been um, maybe not 
not soon enough to have been influenced by Vampire of the Mists, but certainly would have been influenced by the the original Ravenloft Adventures. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. That's cool. Because they were they were immensely popular, the original Ravenloft Adventure. Mm-hmm. Well, we were talking about that when we were researching this about like why Raven because we have both never played any of the Ravenloft adventures yet. We want to because we're both huge fans of gothic horror, but we got to talking of like why is Ravenloft so popular? How do we know who Count Strahd is if we've never even played with him? And I think that is because it just left such an impact on D&D players because it was so mm-hmm. different. Because, like, most mm-hmm. of the adventures of D&D are all about sword and sorcery. They're all about, like, traditional fantasy. Whereas this one is about gothic horror, and it's a completely different setting. Yeah, it's a really different tone, and it's meant to be played in a different way. I think it's intended to be a bit more... When they talk about the three mm-hmm. pillars of D&D being combat, exploration, and roleplay, I think it's definitely skewed much more towards exploration and role play as opposed to combat and mm-hmm. the characters are intended to be a bit weaker so like in the the adventure that i'm running for my for my group um one thing that i decided to do was to scale the historical time period up to make it feel more like the 18th century instead of like the 15th century because i wanted characters who are squishy i thought that a knight in with a huge sword marching around in armor with all these superpowers is not going to inspire fear in the players. But if you're this, if you're like a guy who doesn't even have any armor and you're kind of weak, basically the, the players in my game are weak compared to what they would typically be in a Dungeons and and the reason for that is that the more danger the players feel their character to be in, the more fear the players are going to feel and the more immersed they're going to get into the setting. And that's what appeals about Ravenloft and that also Call, so of, much Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. It's nice to play as this power fantasy i can't remember where i read it where i read it but they called dungeons and dragons is a power fantasy but a power fantasy doesn't work horror because the protagonists need to be at a disadvantage Um, and so that's kind of what appeal ravenloft appeals to a certain kind of player who wants maybe more of a challenge maybe they're not so interested in min maxing their character they're more interested in role play Mm -hmm. more interested in the stories behind the villains rather than just it's a dragon and you have to go kill it the villains have their own backstories and their own motivation that is actually a super good transition into our third part because we're just about out of time mm-hmm. for this part we went a little bit over but you guys were having such a good conversation that i didn't want to interrupt <laughs> so that's a really okay. good transition because we're going to talk about what makes a good villain and you know kind of analyze both strad and soth kind of on the same playing field so unless Lissa has any other things she desperately, desperately wants to share, we can go ahead and move on to part um, three. What, what did I want to say? Oh, yes. One final thing that I will say. Um, if Jander Sunstar or, is uh, Edward Cullen and Strahd is Dracula, then if you want to see or read about 
Edward Cullen versus Dracula, you should read Vampire of the Mist. Thank you. This has been my TED Talk. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I'm going to go write that fan fiction as soon as this is done. Oh my gosh, please do. I would read the crap out of that, <laughs> unironically. <laughs> I would too, actually, yes, please. <laughs> it would be a masterpiece. It really would. It would be a masterpiece in both literature and fan fiction alike. But yeah. I think let's... it might in I think it might invent society as we know it would be reinvented by that mm. it'll be a cultural reset horror. yeah bring yeah, back basically. gothic horror it, that's how you fix 2020 and 2021 you bring back gothic horror <laughs> all right awesome so we can go ahead and move on to our last our final part part three our overarching themes and motifs and analysis etc wow Okay, so part three, overarching themes, motifs, discussion, analysis, and basically just to round out this episode, we spit we spat out a lot of information at you. We'll spit out a little bit more and then we'll get into the actual more juicy bits of discussion. So I feel like it should be mentioned along with giving some contextual analysis to both characters that it's important to note that these characters were created in the 1980s, 1990s, I think mostly the 1980s. So they were developed and their stories were published at the tail end of the basically the sword and sorcery golden age and like right as epic fantasy was starting to take off. So for those who don't know, sword and sorcery is a genre of literature and film usually set in like medieval times, days of old with a little bit of magic, a little bit of sword fighting, sometimes a little bit of romance. And it was actually the toy, the term, the toyn, the term <laughs> was coined by Fritz Lieber, who was one of the main sources of inspiration of D&D for Gary Gygax and a lot of his creations show up in the D&D mythos which I thought was kind of a cool crossover um and what happens when you use that sword and sorcery kind of genre comes with a lot of conventions and it's also very male dominated there aren't a lot of women who write in this genre and I have a theory to why that is that I'll just voice really quickly because statistically and i think this is interesting statistically women actually make up more than a reading more of the reading market than men do according to npr so like 80% of the reading market is actually women and 20% is men which i found is interesting and this was done i think about i couldn't find a more recent study but npr published this about 10 years ago i don't know if the numbers have changed drastically so I was so thinking this is a fantasy. This is just in general. So women make up more of the okay. reading market in general. So mm -hmm. my theory is that men kind of took over or claimed the fantasy genre as their mm -hmm. own because mm. there are way more male authors of fantasy than women. Not to say that there aren't any women fantasy authors, but specifically of like sword and sorcery and epic fantasy. Thankfully, that's changing, but specifically at this time, there really weren't a whole lot of them. So these male authors with their male gaze, 
their male privilege. They weren't looking we it can be assumed that they weren't looking at using like when they used these women as plot devices as lost Lenores and as disposable women, they weren't actually they they didn't see it as using them as a plot device. They just saw it because they wanted to write male stories for men, you know? So disposing of a few women characters and killing off a couple women characters to further the goals of a male character, they didn't see it as bad because they didn't they likely didn't think that women wrote fantasy because not a lot of or they didn't think that women read a lot of fantasy because not a lot of women wrote fantasy. So they I were think, just catering to their audience. Yeah, and they were catering to their own writing style and their own preferences because you can see a lot of like traditional male gender role stuff in Sword and Sorcery and the idyllic version of a masculine man, like especially in the heroic, like the heroic fantasy kind of tale, you mm-hmm. know, muscly man, mm-hmm. a lot of armor, and even men who are mages and a bit more lithe, they still have these very masculine domineering characteristics. So that while it doesn't explain away anything, I think it kind of gives some context into Strahd and Soth specifically and how as villains they were written specifically to cater to a male audience so i don't know do you guys agree disagree discuss <laughs> do agree well, i would say but yeah megan go ahead uh, i just gonna say one thing to remember specifically when dealing with soth and strad is that they were co-created by women so mm-hmm. soth is co-created by margaret weiss and strad is co-created by laura hickman and then vampire of the mists was written by christy golden who is a woman so I think that there's intended to be a bit more sympathy for the female characters in these stories. I think that the authors did use what you describe as the lost Lenora trope, sort of. And I think that there's a darker element to it about these two characters. So in The Raven, the poem, we imagine the protagonist just kind of sitting and feeling sad about the fact that Lenore is gone. But in Soth's character, there's this need to find another Lenore and to possess her. And it's the same with Strahd when he's looking for the reincarnation of Tatiana and trying to possess her. I think that it's meant to portray Soth and Strahd as a bit more evil you know, they're they're not just people who are sad that they've lost this person that they love. They're actively continuing this cycle of damage over and over again to these these women that they have wronged. They're continuing this cycle. Um, and I think that, you know, for female authors and female readers, there must be some kind of recognition of the pattern of this need of strong quote-unquote, strong men to try to possess women. And I think that's probably something lacking in the earlier sword and sorcery. I think that gothic horror deviates a bit from sword and sorcery or from fantasy in the sense that it is a bit more female-driven. You've gotten, you've got Anne Radcliffe as one of the most important early gothic horror writers. And of course, Mary Shelley is probably you know, the big one up next to Bram Stoker. So I think that gothic horror has a certain 
maybe, I don't know what exactly to say what the word is, a little bit more sensitivity towards the female characters. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I mean, they're still used as how do we make this character, either how do we make this character appear sympathetic because he's lost this woman that he loves, or how do we make this character seem extra evil? One of the things about Ravenloft is that the the Dark Lords like um, saw, like Strahd and eventually Soth, they're trapped there. The idea is that they're trapped in Ravenloft, being eternally punished over and over again. And in order for them to be eternally punished, they need to commit some kind of act that's irredeemably evil. And when we try to think of an irredeemably evil act, I think what we think of mostly is killing a spouse, killing a child, killing a you know a parent, or um, doing this what you talked about earlier with a the most tragic form of death or whatever is the death of a beautiful woman. And that's the case with Tatiana, where um, it it should definitely be noted that these were villains that were co-created by women, and they had softer blows to the women, I think, in their backstories than they could have had. You know, like these women did die tragically. They died at the hands of their lover or they died at the hands of, of their own hand in the case of Tatiana, who jumped off of a castle rather than be with vampire daddy so it's 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 a it's hard because it's it's almost like a it's conflicting in a way because these women are reduced to plot devices i don't think there's really any ifs ands or buts about it because i think soth and strad are the more fleshed out characters they have more of a talking point even if they are villains and we're talking more about them that says something we're talking mm. more about them than we're talking about uh tatiana and the two wives of lord soth like they have more longevity in the D world and it's not necessarily these authors' faults that they wrote these characters the way they did because it's very it, they probably took a lot of inspiration from real life. They took inspiration from gothic horror. They took inspiration from sword and sorcery. And you're right. I think it is kind of romantic in a way that they they did choose women and children to die at the hands of these men in order to make them so evil. But looking at it through a millennial, modern perspective and literary perspective, it's just there are so many other ways to make characters sympathetic. Like, yeah, killing people, causing like mass genocide or like fratricide or any other murder is pretty up there. But why is it always the murder of a woman? You know, I think Lissa did a good job talking about this on our art episode where you could probably say it better than I did, isn't it? Like they, when a woman is dead, it's like it's, Poe said, it's yeah, beautiful. It, it's it's more touching um, to the viewer or the reader when a woman dies versus when men die. There was another trope that I did because, and this trope was called something like that: men are just like the killing of men is like. The gist of it, I can't remember what it was called, uh, but the 
uh, gist was that, like, you kill... Men die all the time. But then when a woman dies, that's, like, something... Uh, something more significant, almost, or, or more tragic, or... There, there's like a, there's something about a woman dying that is just like, I don't know if it's in culture or if it's in like our, our brains or, mm -hmm. but something about a woman dying is just a little bit more significant than men dying. I don't know. Is it because men go to war and die all the time or, but like, I think women and children, especially like that's like something more significant than the death of a woman or a child. Yeah, I and say. I think also because I was I did have a point when I started that ramble that I just did, but I I just remembered it after um after, you know, using women and using children and this sympathetic thing for their backstories, they ultimately influence the actions of these characters right so they ultimately both Strahd and Soth are just on this mission to reclaim their lost love and that's like the why they're so evil they cannot move on they are trying to either find the reincarnation of their lost love or they're trying to replace their love with I think it's more problematic with Lord Soth because he just keeps moving on from one character to the next like oh are you my new wife are you my new wife are you my new mm. wife and it's it almost reduce it it's trying to reduce these other characters who which we talk about in Megan's episode that we did with her more in depth with Lorana and Kitiara like they are strong very well-written female characters but from soft's pers perspective they're nothing but rags and not rags per se but they're, they're nothing a, a but point items. of interest yeah, yeah point of interest and i think that's more where the problem lies which does it make and then the ultimate question is does it make them good villains or does it make them bad villains i don't know what do you guys think uh, like think are they good or bad villains I think the idea of women dying these tragic deaths, it's it's very much coded into gothic literature. Yeah. Um, and I it's think poetic. it's probably yeah, it's probably coded into art too. When you were talking about the when you were talking about how a woman dying is portrayed artistic artistically as tragic, it got me thinking about um do you know that painting that's called The Death of Marat, where he's like lying in the bathtub and he's dead after being stabbed? Um, or you think about uh, images of Jesus from sort of the Renaissance, where mm -hmm. Jesus is depicted, he's not depicted as a hairy guy with a beer belly and all this stuff. He's just depicted as hairless and slender, and he's got his long hair and really delicate features. There's, he's definitely portrayed in a feminine way. And so I think that notion just comes through art and informs, informs writers working in a time in the 1980s who are trying to create fiction that's going to appeal to sort of general audiences and now we as you know snooty literary types looking back on these times um, with our woke modern 21st century ideas we see them a lot differently but i believe when they were writing these characters they just saw it as well how do we really get across that this character is 
pure evil while we have him murder this beautiful innocent woman that was supposed to be his you know his Mm sister-in-law or um and i think that it's when you talk about how we focus on the villain characters rather than the women characters that's a literary trope for sure but it's also part of human nature unfortunately or maybe not maybe not human nature but it's something that exists in the culture beyond just literature because i was thinking about when we there's all these documentaries now about serial killers and everybody knows the names of all the famous infamous serial killers but their victims just kind of get lost um and i think that the women who are the victims of these villains in these stories end up kind of suffering the same fate because often we think of a victim as just being not as interesting you know they had their part they had their part to play in the story and then it was over. Whereas we naturally think of the the villain or the killer as sort of the, not the protagonist, but the main character in the story. And that's mm-hmm. something that is with us today. It's not, it's not something that's just, you know, it's not something that we got over in the 1980s and now we've moved on. It's something that still happens. And it's unfortunate that it's really hard to set especially in the media it's really hard to separate or it's really hard to escape the idea of the the killer or the villain and all of his victims rather than seeing his victims as people in their own right yeah i think definitely definitely like modern well even with stuff like marvel and and like superheroes nowadays we're, we're seeing a lot of movies that are to do with kind of creating or or um exploring the past of villains like you have stuff like suicide squad and now the cruella de vil movie um you have magnificent uh maleficent not magnificent sorry maleficent and i think like i think there's something about antagonists and like that modern culture is there's an interest in because i i did write an essay in in high school why am i talking about all my essays in high school or like when did high you school? not know this is lissa's high school essay <laughs> podcast you should you should read them on the air you really should, should honestly um, I would so love to hear them. A, a story's a story is only as good as it's like antagonist was one of the was what i looked at and it something like dracula that the the whole that's the whole story that there's this big bad thing that the is causing chaos or doom to the world and it's this kind of the story of the protagonist getting rid of the antagonist but it's also a lot about the antagonist because it if it's depending on how good your antagonist is it's gonna determine how good your story is and also, well, I think it goes. Mm, yeah, go on. I was gonna say, I think when we were talking earlier about how the gothic genre kind of embraces what's different, I think that's part of why villains appeal to people because mm-hmm. they see in these villains a way of behaving that they themselves cannot act upon in, in their own lives. Um, and yeah, we might, you know, if we had our choice between. Do you want to be Captain America or do you want to be um, 
know, maybe this is not a bad choice to say be Loki. I think everybody wants to be Loki, but yeah. you know, you'd rather, we'd like to imagine that if the opportunity presented itself, we would be the good guy. But there is a certain attraction for villains because they are free to sort of do whatever they want, even if that thing that they want is terrible. The, vi- the mm-hmm. heroes are not free in the same way. Um, and I think that there's a part of us that feels drawn to that. It's also just the issue of the villains are often splashier. You know, they're more, they're, the they more, eye is they drawn to them. to them. They have more depth to them. They're more interesting, I think. Yeah, that was a, that was a point. that was a point that I was going to bring up because we only want to be villains and we only want to read about villains when they're good villains. And I think that can kind of go in our because we try to on this podcast you know list the good and bad things and we've criticized them a lot and then we've contextualized them a lot but I do want to say for both Stoth and for Strahd traditionally in terms of you know literary construction I think these are two good villains mostly because Mm -hmm. you can tell why they're doing what they're doing and sometimes when you get into genre fiction especially sword and sorcery and even Marvel used to have, they're getting better at it, but Marvel used to have a villain problem where most of the villains, their stories were very generic and you could never identify with them. You could never like see why are they doing this and they were just evil for the sake of being evil or they had one really bad thing happen to them and nothing was fleshed out after that and they just felt incomplete. But ever since they really put a lot of money and time into Loki and saw people's reaction to Loki, I think that was a turning point for them in for Marvel because now they're coming up with, you know, people are now – people really like Thanos because they know they can – they while Thanos is awful and what he did was awful, you can still see why he did it. And an even scarier part, you can see – how somebody could snap like that and really like do actions like that so i mean was that a I, pun when you said they could snap like that it wasn't intentional but you know what <laughs> yes mean, he literally <laughs> snapped his finger literally I, snapped his finger i have an example um yes. for thanos specifically because i was in the movie theater and i watched a double feature of um uh both of the movies back to back the first first part and the second part um, having seen, having not seen them, either of them before. Um, and I, I turned around to the person who um, I was in the movie theater with. And I was like, I'm a bit concerned or because um, I can sort of see where Thanos is coming from. And I feel like that is a problem. She just kind of turned to look at me and like with a horrified look and just kind of didn't say anything. I mean, we were in the middle of, middle of the movie, but I understood where he was coming from. Like. That's not a is problem. That, does that though. make me a villain? No, that I don't think that's a problem at all. I think that means that it's a very well-written villain because as much as we hate to admit it, there are villains in real life and there are a lot of circumstances that led that person to do what they did. Like we've had a lot of conversations about killers and serial killers this episode, which is just, you know, yeah. par for the course when you're talking about villains in D&D, especially ones who killed a lot of people. Like, these people have backstories, too. They have motivations that everybody has their breaking point. And when you see that represented in fiction and you see it represented well and you're like, oh, God, 
oh, I mm. can see exactly why people did this. Like, I think my example is while it's not a good movie, I'm going to preface this by saying it's not a very good movie. The second Fantastic Beasts movie, I think, had a really great ending scene or like an ending sequence. So spoilers if you haven't seen it, but it's revealed that Grindelwald, who is the big bad villain of this supposed trilogy i don't know if it's still going on but supposed trilogy he's basically like the big bad and it's revealed that he is basically building up this army of really bad wizards and i'm like well okay how are they going to explain how they got all of these bad wizards together to f- basically you mean like have bad by- themselves you mean like with bad you mean evil wizards not just bad at being wizardry yeah i mean like yeah i'm like pure blood wizards so in the harry potter franchise if you're pure blood you just have wizards in your bloodline you don't have normal person blood muggle blood so he gathered a lot of pure blood wizards but he also gathered a lot of wizards and got the attention of wizards who didn't have racist views and he kind of put them together in a room like okay what are they going to do with this And at the end, he gives this grand speech and shows this basically projection of World War II. And he's like, this is what the muggles are going to do to our world. We need to stop them. And I'm like, oh, my God. He what? (laughs) And it was just this like a chill went down my spine because I still maintain that that's a really fucking good way to recruit people to kill muggles. And to kill non-wizards is you show them a projection of like, hey, we just because in the timeline of this, they'd already had World War One in the Harry Potter universe, I guess. And so he was projecting, hey, the muggles are going to fuck shit up again. We have to stop them. And I'm like, all well, right, I, this movie sucked up until now, but I'm interested. <laughs> I think with... Um... With the characters of Soth and Strahd, they have they have motivations that I think people can, even if they don't sympathize with them, they can understand them. Because one thing that makes Strahd and Soth similar to one another and unique from a lot of other D&D villains is that they were both human at one point. So when I was doing a search for like best, I did a search for like best D&D villains to get a sense of, you know, what who, what the rest of the field looked like. And Mm. most of the other villains that are described as the best villains are monstrous. So they have like beholders and they have dragons and they have other things, but Soth and Strahd were once human and Mm. they made the decisions that caused their downfalls as humans. And I think in a sense that makes them more interesting characters because even though they're monsters now and they've got all these powers, we can understand we can understand them in a way that we can't understand a dragon or a beholder. There's a certain familiarity to yeah. Soth and Strahd. And if you look at Strahd, like his obsession with Tatiana, you know, it's obviously it's sick and it's dangerous, but you know, everybody's you, had that. You feel everybody's so had pathetic. that position. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's wanted to be with someone who was with someone else and felt that, that envy that you mm-hmm. couldn't be with that person that you wanted to be with. Um, and in terms of Lord Soth, everybody's been in a relationship that wasn't working out before. Um, so I think that, you know, cool motive, it's still murder, but 
yeah. you know, we can understand a bit of what drove them to the dark side in the first place, um, even if we don't sympathize with it. And that makes him more relatable than a dragon who just wants treasure. Yes. Yeah. So I think it it can be very safely argued and stated in our opinions, but, you know, our educated opinions, I would say, that these characters are good characters. But this is the Slavonly Trolls podcast, and we're, we need to focus also on the women's, on the the wonderful women in their life that unfortunately passed away. They're fictional women, but I still feel <laughs> like we should hold memoriam the plot to devices. them. The, you mean the plot I'm sorry. That I'm sorry. Away. Yes, the plot device. <laughs> the plot device that have passed away, because I think my biggest critique, because I I kind of want to end out this section because we're just about out of time again, uh, for this last section of ours. But I kind of want to end this section in like how well if these villains aged, specifically when it comes to using the women, like using women as a way to make them sympathetic because again we're we're we are very aware that we're critiquing these characters in a millennial new age feminist lens and i also want to put the caveat that i understand from a writerly perspective from an english perspective like not all characters can be fleshed out that's a lot of work i understand this i i know that not even characters and backstories like sometimes they just you don't have the time or it just doesn't make sense to flesh out all characters. I understand this. But, you know, my biggest gripe with this is that even in the 80s and knowing when these characters were written, it still rubs me the wrong way that there are two male protagonists. Wow, I call them protagonists. Look at all this talk about, like, sympathetic things. And now I'm thinking these people are protagonists. Villains, killers, monsters. I still think that these two villains, like, they have way more in common with their backstories and they both have dead women in their wake and dead families in their wake. And Mm -hmm. I think that's just kind of inherently problematic to have two of your pretty iconic villains, very well-written villains, but two of your most iconic villains have a pile basically of dead women in their wake like how well is that even if they did use it for sympathy and even if you know it was of the times how well do we think that that is age because it's still I can't quite put my finger on it but it, it just rubs me the wrong way because there are other ways to make your villain or make your character sympathetic like there are a lot more ways I would say that if you were to take the character from just how they originally appeared and look at them now, you would say that, no, they've probably not aged well. Um, However, both of these characters evolve over the course of time. The fact that they've been in so many games and so many novels over the years and as attitudes change, the characters have changed as well. And I think that we saw a little bit of that in Lord Soth, where I think that Soth was intended to be just a pure evil villain at the beginning. But what happened is that he became so popular that he took on that role of protagonist. You know, he actually became a protagonist in the, in the novel Night of the Black Rose. And I think that the authors saw what he had become and wanted to give him 
a way out in the section that I read from Dragons of a Vanished Moon. They wanted to give him a way out that would feel, that would allow characters who are fans of Lord Soth to not feel like they were rooting for an evil person. Whether that's a good motive, I mean, whether it's correct for them to have done that or not, I guess is up for debate. But I think that that's how they perceived Soth as well. The way fans look at him has evolved from what we originally intended for him to be. And so we're going to evolve the character along with the audience's perception. Um, and that's why I think they wanted to have him feel, have that moment of remorse or whatever at the end. Um, and then with Strahd, again, I feel like maybe Strahd himself has not evolved that much. But I feel as if the game around Strahd has a So like when I said in the original Ravenloft adventure, you're just trying to save um, you're just trying to save Elena, the reincarnated Tatiana. You're just trying to save her. In Curse of Strahd, you're trying to um, you know, you can save her, you can reunite her with Sergei, you can even recruit her to help you defeat Strahd. But then in the very newest version of Ravenloft, she can be a fully fleshed out character. There's even a reincarnation of Tatiana that um, presents her as reincarnated into a distant cousin of Strahd, who is herself a vampire. And her plan is to come to Barovia and defeat Strahd and conquer it herself. So there's a lot of different versions of Tatiana that exist in the current lore, the current Ravenloft mythology. And I think that that's sort of an attempt to be a reaction to the way that female victims were portrayed in the older games. There's also a character that I wanted to talk about. We didn't get really enough time to talk about it, but there's a character in the new Ravenloft setting that's called Victor Mordenheim, and she's a gender-swapped version of Dr. Frankenstein. In the original mm -hmm. Ravenloft, she's male. And I think that was an attempt by the creators of Ravenloft to present this a bit differently. So instead of having the female just being the victim of the monster, in this case, the monster is a female. The Dr. Mordenheim of the new Ravenloft is very much an evil character. And there's a lot of gender-swapped Dark Lords in the new Ravenloft book. And I think what they're trying to do is get away from that gothic idea of the victimized woman who has no power mm -hmm. and instead create strong female villains in their own right. So in that sense, Strahd is Strahd, is Strahd but mm -hmm. the world around Strahd has changed to reflect more modern thinking about how women should be portrayed in games. I think that's a really interesting interesting take on that and i'm i mean i i come from a very biased point of view where i'm i'm a huge fan of kind of dracula um and therefore i guess strahd in a way I've, i mean i haven't played curse of strahd and i haven't read the book so i can't really make a kind of make a um judgment on that but i think that like I think Strahd is is a good villain. I think Soth, up to the point where he is, he is a villain with a backstory, and he's been built over time to be this 
um, kind of like not one directional or one dimensional, I mean, I guess, um, not, not one dimensional villain. So I think that the villains have aged well, well, I mean, they, they still have, you know, women in their piles of bodies and their backstory and stuff like that. So, eh, but again, they are old as, you know, from, you know, back in the day when they were first thought up and stuff. So giving the benefit be of the doubt. Difficult. Yeah. It's always going to be difficult to change the lore from these characters. I mean, we see how much backlash Wizards of the Coast has gotten for the changes that they made into the in the new Ravenloft. Like if you're if you're mm -hmm. a Ravenloft nerd like me who follows, you know, these online groups and stuff you see how much backlash there is to these changes that are made. And of course, the creators of these games are always aware that this is going to happen. So I think they have a difficult decision to make, a trade-off between what did what can be changed and what is so baked into the lore that they're never going to be able to change it. Um, and I feel like with Tatiana and with Strahd's, I'm sorry, with Sot's wives, there's never going to be a way to extricate the two of them because they've just they are one and the same at this point. You can't have one without the other. Yeah, and I think you made a really, really excellent point that I think is just a good point to end on, Megan, is that these characters, while they have a pile of women bodies behind them, and it is it is quite problematic, there are many other ways to make sympathetic characters. They do just exist in Dragon, A Dragon Age. Wow. Dragonlance and Ravenloft <laughs> and D&D lore. And there isn't really much you can do to change that because there not only are there a lot of diehard fans, but I mean, D&D &D is wonderful in that it has all of this lore that's kind of pre-made into it, but it also is a system that people play in. It's a gaming system where you can change whatever you want. There can be the official yeah, I, things. Mm -hmm, there can mm -hmm. be the official things that are in the lore but if you want to, you can do a gender-swapped Strahd if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. You could do a gender-swapped mm -hmm. Soth if you wanted to. You can get rid of this backstory if you wanted to. You can use them for inspiration in your games to make other mm -hmm. kinds of villains if you want to. It's really whatever you want to do at your table. And there is the official Dragon Age. Dragon Age. Wow. Why do I keep saying that? D&D. <laughs> &D, Dragon Lands. It, it it's it's called it's called Dungeons and Dragons. It's called Dungeons and Dragons. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. <laughs> um, it's really like it's it's a wonderful thing to have this much lore about a game, right? But it is at the end of the day a game, and it has a bunch of books and lore that's attached to it. But if you really want to, and I encourage anyone to do so, just homebrew some stuff. It has you have some some leeway with this and and learn from these characters learn from these writers these books mm -hmm. and change and do whatever you want it's it's your game it's your table and just have fun with it really yeah. i think is a good place to end but um really in in conclusion i think today we have like, and I think most of our episodes just kind of end with the conclusion of, well, this isn't really just a D&D &D problem. This is a world problem. <laughs> it's a real world problem. It's a and real it's world problem. it's so much problem. bigger than just D&D. &D. 
and it, 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 you know, we sound like a broken record, but it's true. And then I also want to end on the point of what, you know, I just said previously. And also, like, I hope that Wizards of the Coast is already doing a great job in changing the world around these characters, like Megan said, like changing other characters around Strahd and maybe one day even fleshing out more of Lord Soth in certain ways. Like they are improving on this. And while it is in the D&D canon, there is still room to improve well, on that. I mean, just a comment on that. They yeah. uh, they did not put Lord Soth into the new uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft they should have uh, on purpose because um, oh. he died and they wanted to honor the kind of character and his story of so keep him dead basically yeah if you want to talk about if you want to talk about um if you want to talk about lord soth and his switch from ravenloft or his switch from dragonlance to ravenloft and back uh we can do that for another hour (laughs) probably i i remember because it's super it's super complicated it's very complicated (laughs) i have heard this Mm -hmm. oh my gosh well, um, um, I guess my, can I give my concluding thought? Oh my gosh. Yeah, of course. Of course. And then we'll, you know, do the whole spiel. <laughs> so my concluding thought would be that there are problem. My concluding thought would be that there are problematic elements baked into these characters and there may not be a way to extricate them now, but if you're a modern person playing the modern game, the, the way Wizards of the Coast is changing things really makes it possible for you to reinvent these characters and maybe not change the past for, you know, you can't go back in time and save Tatiana, but you can have her reincarnated as a form that's ready to kick Strahd's ass and get revenge for what he did to her. And I think that's a cool idea. That's a great idea for a campaign or like a one shot just in general. And same with, honestly, same with Soth. Like, can I please run, like, a short campaign one day where it's just, like, everybody gets to play a member of Soth's family that he murdered, and then their entire, like, the entire point of the campaign is just to kill Lord Soth? Oh, that sounds like fun. That sounds like so much fun. Let's let's (laughs) do it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Let's add it to the list. (laughs) So, Um, next time you hear from us, we'll be playing a campaign with Megan. (laughs) Is that what I'm hearing? (laughs) <laughs> that I, I honestly would be up for it. I think that'd be great. <laughs> um, yeah. um thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Megan, for joining us today. It has been yes. so much fun. We've learned so much. So insightful. So yeah, you're so insightful. Thank you for like putting your opinions out there, not being afraid to just like stand your ground. It's great. I love this. This is a great discussion. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I love talking to you guys. Yeah, it's so much fun. So why don't you go ahead and and plug all your socials if you want, like take this time, go ahead. And where can people find you? Where can people find your podcast? Where can people find you on social media, etc.? So my podcast is called D&D Book Club. That's D-A-N-D-D Book Club. It's available on Spotify, on um, Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, basically anywhere that you can get podcasts, you can find D&D Book Club. 
Um, you can also follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is DND Book Club. And I post pictures there and updates there. And I would love to hear from you. Awesome. And cool. uh, as always, uh, we are the Slovenly Trolls. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the Slovenly Trolls. And I'd also like to still – we're still looking for that person who gave us a five-star review on um, Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. We have mm-hmm. not had anybody reach out. Um, and also, I figured it'd be a cool time to shout out – if you want to rate us on Apple Podcasts, because apparently that's the only podcasting platform that – you're able to rate people on, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That'd be swell <laughs> because I would 100% write a personalized letter to every single person who does that because it means so, so much. And please don't be afraid to reach out on social media, on Instagram or Twitter. We're obnoxiously active on both. We'd love to hear from you. And yeah, just talk about all of the, all the, all the D&D things. So um, until next time. We've been the Slovenly Trolls, and don't forget the number one rule of D&D. Don't be be a dick. A dick. (laughs) Bye. 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 Slovenly Trolls, we're big, bad, evil girls. The Slovenly Trolls podcast is part of the Can't Be Killed Creations podcast network. Make sure to check us out at campykilledcreations.com.